sins, you remember all your promises. Amen? You're going to see how much more important that is when it comes to the study of psychology. Now, tonight's message is called Christian Psychology 101. And one of the reasons I think we need to talk about this is because there's a lot of crazy people here tonight. You're all crazy. (laughs) That's why we can't. All joking aside, ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, people are off. We are technically a little bit crazy, aren't we? We're all just a little crazy because we're all not exactly as we're supposed to be. And I want to say at the outset before we start this, there are cases where just like with a medical condition such as diabetes, which I have and need medication for, there are people who have actual chemical imbalances in their brain, which causes their brain physically not to function as they should. That is a very small, small, small percentage of people. But it does happen. And I think what has happened in the church of Jesus Christ is we have given in to a secular view of psychology. And if you don't even understand what a secular view of psychology is as opposed to a Christian view, you're probably not aware of that. But it's important to be aware of because a lot of Christians, I've heard this in a lot of places, a lot of Christians would say, oh, psychology, and throw their hands up in the air. That's not a Christian discipline. Yes, it is. All truth is God's truth. Amen? Who created your mind? God. Who knows how to fix it? God. There is a Christian psychology. It's just that the world has so deluded us and we're so given to a secular view of psychology, we can't quite grasp what's really going on. So I want to talk to you tonight because there are days... You know, Pastor talked about it this morning. We're all human, and we all go through bouts of depression and sadness. And sometimes, and I don't know if you've ever been there. I have literally been there. How many of you have been on the edge and thought, I think I'm going to have a breakdown? How many of you have ever felt, I think I'm this far from insanity? Yeah. When I talk, I like to be honest. Amen? And we need to get to the heart of what the issue is and what the problem is. Now, until heaven, nothing will be perfect. Amen? We'll all just be a little loony until then. But we can get to the heart of the issue. So I want you to pray with me because it's a very serious thing. We want to handle it exactly as God wants it handled. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And we thank you that you are the mender of hearts and minds. I thank you, Jesus, that even in a broken world, there's hope for us. But so often we don't grasp that hope, not because you haven't given to us, but because we haven't thought about it. We haven't truly studied it from your perspective. You talk about in Chronicles, there was a group of people that were given and they were people who were who understood the times and knew what the people of Israel ought to do in light of the times that they were living And we as Christians cannot put our head in the sand, Lord. We understand that. We can't just bury our heads and say, well, the world has the grip on psychology and we don't really care what they're doing. We have to know. Because we have to know what the truth is and we have to be able to discern. And, Lord, we want to know where true healing for our minds and hearts comes from. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you give us wisdom tonight. 
clear out our minds so that they can focus on you. I pray against any power of the enemy that surely is in this place to try to do damage and distract. And I know that the blood of Jesus is stronger than any force in the universe. And so we pray for your healing and your strength tonight as we grow and as we learn together. Let me give this all to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, a lot of young people in the youth group, a lot of good things have been happening. They've been asking about discernment in going to public school and how to talk to their teachers in science and history classes, and that's wonderful. And a lot of the young people have been coming to us leaders and say, seriously, how do we know when God is speaking to us? How how do we hear God talk to us? And I think that's a really neat thing to have young people ask, amen? And so... What I, what I shared with them last week, we're doing a series on the Holy Spirit in youth group, and what I shared with them is, you want to hear from God and you want to know what His speaking to your life is, but you have to understand that in order for that to happen, you have to invest in studying and understanding it. See, a lot of Christians, we think, as far as mental and psychological healing goes, let's just pray, you know, and it's just a feeling that God gives you. How many of you know that the healing that comes from God is based on truth? It's not just a feeling. Feelings can come with it, but feelings can also come and go. So you've got to know the truth behind what it is that is setting you free. And so as we begin to study the Holy Spirit in youth group, kids are starting to understand and God's starting to talk to them. And so what I want to do tonight is to talk about Christian psychology, to talk about secular psychology, and show you discernment and differences between the two. So let's begin with the word psychology itself. Now, psychology has kind of morphed into uh, different areas, but back in 1653, if you look up the etymology of the word psychology, it originally meant the study of the soul. However... And let me just tell you the roots of that, too, come from the Greek word, which is pronounced in the Greek suke, I believe, but we call it psyche. It comes from the word psyche and logia, which means a study of. It's the study of the soul. And that is a Greek word that we see used in the New Testament. However, what's happened is we're living in a world where a lot of people are secular humanists. Now, secular humanists, you can kind of lump atheists, agnostics, You know, kind of a whole bunch of group of people together into this big title, secular humanists. People who believe that humans are the end all of everything. That through human reasoning, we can solve all the problems of the world. Okay? We don't need God or anybody else. Now, if you have a view that there is no God, why would psychology change its definition for you? Any guesses? Why would you not want to go with the old-time definition of the study of the soul if you don't believe in God? Any guesses? Because if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in supernatural things. You don't believe in the soul. So, interestingly, I went to dictionary.com, a contemporary dictionary, just the other day, and what I found for a definition was the science of the mind or of mental states and processes. So you see how that's kind of changed just a bit. And now we're talking about the study of the mind, and the word soul is not used. 
while that is a good definition, it's the science of human or animal behavior. And we start to hear this word behavior come up, and not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, except you're going to learn that that's coming from a slant of behaviorism, which we'll address in a few minutes. But remember this, we as human beings do have souls, amen? And so when you're dealing with psychology, unless it is an actual situation where there is chemical, physical imbalances, then you're dealing with a soul and a mind issue. Now, here's the effect that secular humanism has had on psychology. And this is what your children are learning in school. It's what I, you know, I went to Seton Hill for my undergrad degree, and they're a supposed Catholic college. It's what I learned. It's what everybody's learning unless they're truly in a Christian environment, learning from a Christian professor with a Christian text. Here's the effects of secular humanism on psychology. First of all, secular humanists deny the existence of the supernatural. Flat out, there's nothing supernatural. This would mean there's no God, there's no Satan, there are no angels, there are no demons, there's no heaven, there's no hell. There's no mind in the sense of we think of it. There's no soul, and there's not really a personality in any meaningful sense. And I'm going to explain that. But what that basically says is, if we are nothing but highly evolved animals made only of material stuff, there is no immaterial part of us. And so our mind and what happens in our mind and our brain would be a byproduct of physical interactions. Hard to, a little bit hard to grasp and understand because we're so used to what we believe, okay? Secular humanists also believe in the innate goodness of human beings. Do Christians believe in that? Anybody want to take a guess? Lori, you're shaking your head no. Why? Why do you say no? You're right. What do we believe? Yeah, we believe that human beings are born completely bent towards evil. Correct? It was R.C. Sproul. I can't remember his exact quote. Anybody listen to R.C. Sproul? He cracked me up one morning. He was talking about babies. He was getting so down and nasty and mean, saying, you, you, want to believe, you, you think that people are born good? You know, he started talking about children and how self-centered and how demanding. And, and I was thinking, Children? That's me. You know what I mean? But anyway, we, are, we believe that we are born, we have inherited. You can go to the book of Romans and explore this, but we know that as humans, Adam and Eve sinned and passed on sinfulness to us. And not only did they pass it on as like a magical formula, we didn't just inherit it. We also are sinners. Amen? So we are born sinners. Secular humanists believe in the relativism of moral values. That's what only makes sense, because if you don't believe in a God, if you don't believe in anyone above us, and if you believe that everything gets better through evolution, then what else would be evolving? Not just bodies, but moral values and the way we ought to act. And you'll hear a lot of this kind of rhetoric in the news when people are talking about what kind of lifestyles and what kind of things that we should tolerate, because we have what? We have evolved. Times are changing. Secular humanists also believe in behaviorism. Now, some of them don't adhere to this strictly, but David Nobel, who is a Christian, who wrote a wonderful book called Understanding the Times, it's a textbook, summarized behaviorism by saying, it's the belief that all human thought and personality are merely byproducts of physical interactions of the brain. When I used to teach this in Christian high school, the kids had a hard time understanding this because we're so not used to it. But if you're an atheist and you don't believe in God and you don't believe in anything supernatural, then your mind is nothing more than the atoms banging around in your brain. 
You understand that? And the only thing you do is react to physical stimuli. So in other words, they're saying whatever stimulates your physical self, whatever experiences you're having, whatever you're taking in through your senses, that is going to determine how you are. Now, that has led to a huge problem in our society, the problem of victimization. Anybody know about that? Okay, it's not my fault. Okay, my grandfather did it to his son, did it to me, okay? It was the way I was raised. It's the kids at school. They make me feel this way about myself. It's McDonald's. Their coffee's too hot. I didn't know any better. Everybody's a victim. Nobody has to take responsibility for anything in our society. Did you ever notice that? He did this because X, Y, Z. And that actually, there's a reason for that, and it's rooted in the concept that we are nothing more than material beings that react to stimuli. Now, some of the big names in psychology that some of you should be familiar with, how many have ever heard of Sigmund Freud? All right. B.F. Skinner. Good, Laura. Pavlov's dogs. Whoever studied Pavlov's dogs? Okay, yeah. Carl Rogers. Who's ever heard of the great Abraham Maslow and Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes. I studied him in high school and in college. It's all over the place. And your kids are going to have it. They either are having it in school. Do you see Laura's hand raised? All right. Or they will in college. So this is important to understand. Now, the effects of secular humanism, let's talk about this. If you deny, uh, they deny the supernatural. Now, not only do we not deny the supernatural, what do we actually believe about the supernatural versus the natural? Anybody? Anybody who's been in apologetics activated and paid the least bit of attention. The supernatural is greater than even the natural. It's more real. Because which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the natural or the supernatural? God. God is supernatural. So from the supernatural, the Hebrews tells us everything that was made was, was made or created by that which is Invisible, okay? So not only do we not deny the supernatural, we say that the supernatural is even more real than the natural. Amen? Is God more real than what he's created? Yes. Now, as far as the innate goodness of humans, we've talked about that. We're going to go to that in a few points here. Relativism of moral values. Now, look, if you believe everything's evolving and there's no absolute truth or absolute being above you, then, of course, you would think that everything evolves. As the body gets better, you know, as things get better, so do our moral values. Now, do we as Christians believe that? Is there any relativity in moral values? Everybody say, no, there's not. Moral values are rooted in the character of God. Does the character of God ever change? What was wrong 4,000 years ago is still wrong today. Amen? God's truth does not change. And I want you to understand something. When you get in a conversation with somebody, the reason you believe that values are not relative is because you believe that values are rooted in the what? The character of God. And God does not change, all right? So that's a difference, too. Now, secular humanism is obviously a self-centered worldview. This is what Abraham Maslow, uh, the great secular psychologist, 
of the 20th century said, in his own words, he said, since this inner nature that's in men and women is good or neutral rather than bad, it's best to bring it out and to encourage it rather than to suppress it. If it's permitted to guide our life, we grow healthy, fruitful, and happy. And isn't that what happens when we tell people, you don't have to have any absolute moral values. Whatever you feel in your soul, just do it. Doesn't that always work? Isn't that what you tell your children? We're not going to have any rules in this household. Whatever you feel in that good little soul of yours, you just go about and do it. And wouldn't that be a wonderful place? Okay, that is in essence what secular humans on a large scale believe. They would say people are good by nature. At worst, you're neutral. And, and at best, you're very good by nature. So why suppress it? Now, do we hear that kind of talk in today's society? Yes, in regards to many behaviors, don't suppress it. Let it out, baby, let it out, okay? All right, now, Carl Rogers, another secular psychologist, said this, and boy, was he prophesying at the time. I don't mean in a godly way, but it is very true. Watch this. He said, the philosophy of the future will stress the value of the individual. It will, I think, center itself in the individual as the evaluating agent. Yeah, I see head shaking back there. Isn't that something? He died in 1987. Was he telling the truth or what? We are living in a world today where you as the individual are the one who says what's right or wrong for yourself. It's just a free-for-all. It's just like the book of Judges. There's nothing new under the sun. The book of Judges said every man and woman did what was, what does it say, right in their own eyes. And it was deemed okay. And that's what's happening today. Now, Abraham Maslow, how many of you have ever studied this? Raise your hand so we can get, see how many people. Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, there's nothing inherently, like I'm not saying this is an evil thing because I taught it in Christian school and there is some truth because God's truth is the one truth and anything that is less than God's truth is just a perversion. It's a twisting. So there's some good in this. Abraham Maslow is famous for making this hierarchy of needs where he said, okay, at the lowest level, your physiological needs have to be met in order for you to go any further. So, yeah, you need to have food, water, and shelter. You know, if I'm starving to death, I'm not going to accomplish much more. Everybody knows that. Then he said your safety needs have to be met. You have to feel secure and stable and free from fear if you're going to flourish. Then your belonging needs have to be met. You have to feel like you have friends and family and you have love and support. Then he said... Your self-esteem needs come next. And that is your feeling that you have respect, that you are recognized, that you've mastered something. And i got to say something here. Is self-esteem a healthy thing to have? Well, Jesus said, God said, that we are to love him first and love our neighbor as we... You have to love yourself, yes. However, I would, I would say that for a Christian, it's not self-esteem, it's Jesus' esteem. Amen? What makes me respectable or able to be anything is my Savior. Okay? So, self-esteem comes next, and then the goal in this hierarchy is self-actualization, which is where you get to a point where you become completely fulfilled and accomplish everything that you could possibly accomplish, and Abraham Maslow says that some people reach that, including, I think, he says, Thomas Jefferson. Somewhere I heard he thought Abraham Lincoln was, too. Yeah. We all know that even if Abraham Lincoln wasn't self-actualized, he was a very handsome man, right? Okay. 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 Anyway. Self-actualization. Now, if you notice on this chart, it is ironic that the top two parts of the chart 
begin with the word what? Self. So the whole goal of life is get your needs met, get my needs met, get my needs met, get my needs met, my higher needs, my higher needs, and finally I become everything that I should be. And there I am at the top. I'm self-actualized. Don't I feel good? It's a very self-centered worldview. When you think about it, the Christian worldview is exactly the opposite. Amen? What's the Bible say to do? Minimize yourself and maximize Christ. Amen? You know, when I, when I looked at a, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I thought, what would the Apostle Paul have thought about that when he was chained to the Roman soldier? His belonging needs, his safety needs. His, you know what? He was perfectly fine. And writing the book of Philippians. Amen? Because it isn't about the hierarchy of your selfish needs. It is about this. When you minimize yourself and you maximize Christ, then you will fulfill your purpose, which is really cool because 2 Timothy chapter 2 is one of the places it tells us this. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. The ultimate purpose for us as Christians who know the Lord is one day we are going to rule and reign with God. Amen? How many of you realize that? That's what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. But my ultimate fulfillment will come when I put self on the bottom and Christ at the top, and then my purpose comes to fruition. And my purpose will be God's glory, because we'll all be working to have in heaven together with the gifts and talents God has given each one of us, fulfilling what he meant for us to do, and he will be glorified by it. Amen? Yeah. Amen! Thank you. Okay. You gotta be a little bit excited about that. That's your future. Okay, now, for the secular humanist, when we talk about, well, for us, what is the source of the soul? Because the secular humanist would say you have what? No soul. You just have a brain, a physical brain. And the byproducts of all that physiological stuff going in there is what makes you think. We believe in a soul. What is the source of the soul for the Christian? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, did you ever think about this? Where did the dust come from? Okay, first of all, God made the dust. And he made it out of what? Nothing. Very good, darling. He made it out of absolutely nothing. So he makes out of nothing, he makes the dust of the ground. Now, after he formed the dust of the ground, then he picked up some of the dust of the ground, which, you know, scientifically, when we study the human body, it's just made of the elements of the earth, correct? He picked up physical stuff, and he made that physical stuff different from all the other stuff, because what he did with it was he what? He breathed into us a soul. That's where the soul came in. So very clearly from this scripture, God's breathing into a physical substance or a physical body is the source of the soul. So when someday, I know Jesus is going to come back before I die because we have like a promise. No. <laughs> I just like to think we do. But let's just say that I die and you actually have to see me in the casket. That won't be me anymore. Amen. Because there's an immaterial part to me. That's the soul. Now, we are, here's a term that, that you should be familiar with. When it comes to psychology, we are dualists. We believe in psychological dualism, whereas secular humanists believe in psychological monism. 
Now, we're dualists because we believe that reality is composed of two basic and distinct elements, mind and matter. Does that make sense? There are two different things. The mind or the soul and spirit and matter or the body exist as separate entities. The mind is not mere matter. Now, other than Genesis 2-7, can anybody think of a New Testament place that verifies that there is a mind, there is a soul, and there is also a body? Anybody? Think of a New Testament piece of evidence. Because there is like to corroborate the Old and New Testament. Soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's a, I was actually going to refer to that in a different part of this. That's a very good scripture. Because where does soul and spirit begin and end? You know, that's something that only uh, the Holy Spirit or God can tell. But how about this? When Jesus was talking to his disciples and he knew they were about to be persecuted and martyred for him, he looked at them. And if you have your Bibles, turn there. Let's actually go here. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. I want to show you a place that you can turn to. Jesus was definitely a psychological dualist. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, to his disciples, before they were about to be persecuted, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Now let's stop and just ask ourselves this question. Who was he referring to? Any guesses? Who can kill the body? Yeah. Satan, for, you know, as the prince of the power of the air, under God's sovereignty, all right, Satan has a certain amount of power in working through evil human beings who lend themselves to his power. Yes, Satan and his minions have the ability, he said to his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body because they cannot kill the what? It cannot kill the soul. So Jesus was differentiating. He said, okay, they may take your body and they may put it on a cross and they may crucify you like they did me. They may put your head on a chopping block and separate your head from your body and you may physically die. But do not fear that because they're only killing the body. They're not killing the... And there's your hope. When you're laying on your hospital bed and you're about to breathe your last, you need to think about that. This is not the end of me. Amen? Because of what Jesus said. He said, rather... You should fear the one who can destroy both your soul and your body in hell. So while the devil can mess around with your body, who can mess around with your soul? God has all power to destroy the body and the soul. So Jesus was definitely a dualist. Now, what is the nature of our soul? Genesis 1.27 says clearly, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I said to note the surrounding context because he also created us, you'll see there, to rule and to take dominion over the creation that he made, which is exciting. But watch this. James chapter 3, verse 9. We won't turn there, but that's a New Testament corroborating passage that shows you that still today, everyone who's born is made in the image of God. And matter of fact, that's a neat scripture because it says, how can you use your tongue to praise God and at the same time curse your brother or sister in Christ who is made in God's image? Okay. Now watch this. I took that phrase, created in God's image, each of those three main words, and I want to emphasize each one of them separately and look at what it means. You want to know what your soul is like? Number one, your soul was created in God's image. 
Now, when we talk about something being created, that means that my purpose, the purpose for my soul is rooted in someone else. I belong to someone. Now, when I was young, you can ask my parents, I used to make Lego creations. Yes, they were something else. I made amphibious spaceship slash land transportation vehicles, okay? These things that had wheels that came down and can drive in the grass in the yard. And then when I felt like flying, the wheels would come up and the wings would come up. I designed these things, you know. And I played with these things for hours. Now, the thing is, I didn't really create. Man doesn't really create anything because without the oil that God made, we wouldn't be able to make Legos. And without the brain that God gave me, I wouldn't be able to design it. But just for, just for argument's sake, let's say I created that Lego thing. Who knows best how to use it? Who knows all its functions? Me. My brothers couldn't pick that thing up and know exactly what to do. When you're created by someone, your purpose is rooted in them. You were made to be who they designed you to be. Amen? So being created in God's image means your purpose is rooted in someone else. Now, if we emphasize this word, we're not just created, but we're created in God's image. That means that we're accountable and will only find pleasure in the God of the Bible. Amen? You can rebel against this all you want, but the God of the Bible is specifically the God who made you. So you're going to find your pleasure in serving Him according to His Word. And then finally, we were created in God's image. Now this is important because the New Age culture that we live in, Deepak Chopra, Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil, all these kind of cultural characters who believe in a New Age type of thinking would say that you weren't created in God's image, you were created as God. Okay, we are not God. We are not made to be God. We are made to be like God. That's the nature of the soul, all right? In submission to Him, finding its purpose in Him. Now, Francis Schaeffer, before I put his quote up, how many of you have ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? What's his most famous book? What did he write? Anybody know? The God, the God who is there. Anybody read that book? Okay, Francis Schaeffer was a great uh, Christian worldview apologist, and here's what he said about the soul. He said, the basic psychological problem is trying to be what we are not and trying to carry what we cannot carry. Most of all, the basic problem is not being willing to be the creatures we are before the Creator. Now, I would agree with him. Our real psychological problem is trying to be what we are not and trying to carry what we shouldn't carry and trying to be more or different from who we were made to be under God. We were never meant to carry the weight of our own sin. Amen? We were never meant to define our own purpose. Amen? And when we do either one of those things, when we carry the weight of our own sin or when we live out a purpose other than God's purpose and his plan, we will always run into psychological problems. Always. Okay? The unrest of the soul. How many of you have ever felt unrest in your soul? How many of you felt unrest in your soul today? Me. Okay, listen. You know that feeling of dis-ease? 
You can get deep in the core of you, like something's off, something just isn't right. Where did that come from then, from a Christian perspective? You know, it goes back to the beginning. And I was thinking about this the other day. When we talk about Adam and Eve and their sin, I, I don't know why this, this thought struck me, but tell me, tell me someone else has thought this through before me because I only got it a couple days ago. We always talk about Adam and Eve and when they sinned, they committed one sin there. The first sin ever, correct? And do you see what was set into motion? Did you ever think about the fact that when we compare ourselves to them, at that point they had only committed one sin? Yeah, Cindy, are you getting it? So I'm driving down the road the other day, and I'm thinking, no wonder I'm such a psychological mess. It's not just one sin. If one sin caused that much commotion, just look at what I've done. Amen? And the, and the entanglements and the way that sin reaches out, and it, it just touches so many people, and the ripple effect. Amen? It's like damning. Okay, so the, the unrest of the soul. Now, let's get to the heart of this. And, no, you know, nobody should feel singled out at all because we are all on the same boat when it comes to sin. Amen. Some of us cover our sins better than others. But we all are sinners and we all struggle with it. Now, this unrest of the soul back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and committed sin, the first thing they attempted to do was cover. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths for themselves. Right? Now, let's, let's go back and think about this. So here are these two people who walked with God and with each other every day. Now they've rebelled against God, and all of a sudden, they're standing there, and they feel ashamed. You know the feeling? Has anybody ever been standing anywhere and felt suddenly ashamed? Okay. So they felt suddenly ashamed, and their tendency was what, what used to be good and okay, now I've got to cover. There's something about me that I've got to cover. I've got to cover this nakedness. I've got to cover it not only from God, I've got to cover it from you. Okay? To this day... What is everybody doing when we walk around? Putting on our what? Putting on our masks, putting on our fig leaves, you know? Just covering from each other, you know? Oh, I hope the West really think good of me. Do you guys like me? Aren't I I great? You know what I mean? Okay, I'm just such a wonderful person. Look at me, I've got it all together. Okay? But the first beginning of unrest was trying to hide something that in reality was there, but you're straining to cover it up. Now, when God says, how should you deal with what you're ashamed of, Psalm 32, this just came to me, Psalm 32 says, you are to do what with your transgressions? Cover them? Confess them. Get them out. Be real with yourself. And I'm going to recommend something from a psychological perspective. If you can get by yourself somewhere and do it out loud, do it out loud. You know, if you committed some sin and you're aware of it or a pattern of sin that you're in, I would recommend that instead of hiding it and covering it or going to God like this and praying or going, get somewhere where you can be by yourself and say out loud, God, please forgive me. 
I did this horrible thing today. And say the sin and confess it because covering was the beginning of the evidence of unrest in the soul. Now, here's what else they did. Not only did they try to cover, they ran and hide. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, I love this one because I don't know how thick the trunks were of the trees, but I'm trying to picture myself running behind a telephone pole and saying, you can't find me. Okay, first of all, it seems ludicrous to me. But I thought about this the other day. They hid in the trees of the garden. They tried to hide behind another part of creation. Yeah. Which is exactly what we do. We sin against God. We're in a place where we know we're in rebellion. There's something in our life that is not aligned with what God wants it to be. And, and we're covering and we're trying to hide behind something else. Now, we do this all the time. Another part of creation. First of all, sometimes we hide behind other people. Okay? I'll just find my refuge in another person. You know? I'll cling to my family, I'll cling to my friends, I'll get involved in this group, I'll busy myself with this, and I'll just get myself all wrapped up in people, and I'll kind of hide behind my relationships and find my security in those, because I'm really running. Or in another part of creation, we can do it with our careers, amen? We can do it with our houses, we can keep ourselves busy, you know, waxing our cars and and redoing our houses, and we can just hide behind so many things, but that's a symptom of the unrest of the soul that is really there because of what? Because there's something out of line with God. There's sin. The next thing that they did, and this is all through Genesis 3, uh, we, specifically in 12 and 13, is they made excuses and they blamed. And this is what we see happening in the secular humanist perspective. Everybody's a victim. You know what I mean? The devil made me do it. My great-grandfather passed it on. To, and, and there's a word, and I've been guilty of using it too. It's not necessarily a wrong word to use, but it's, I believe, a euphemism. Do you know what a euphemism is? It's a word that's meant to soften something else like today we talk about people commit um people have affairs isn't affair a lovely word wasn't there an old show one time family affair okay yeah so affair you know people have affairs or people they sleep together doesn't sound so bad it's adultery man It's adultery, okay? That's a euphemism. And this is the word that we are throwing around all the time. And I found myself starting to do it, which is when God convicted me. Shall we get back to the root of psychology? Dysfunction. How many of you have ever heard the word dysfunction? I'm I'm dysfunctional. Yeah, you bet you are. (laughs) I know. You know, if the Bible's true, you are, okay? But dysfunction, think about this. Dysfunction means not functioning as it ought to function, right? Now, what is sin? What is sin? When we don't what? Function as we ought to function. But who defines that? God. Okay? So let's, instead of calling it dysfunction, let's call it sinfulness. I come from a dysfunctional family. You bet you do. (laughs) Okay? Your mom and your dad and your siblings and your grandparents, they were all sinners. And just like Pastor said this morning, we all have a different makeup, different genetically, different gifts and talents. We all have different sins that we struggle with. Amen? 
But everybody is at odds with God in some way and has an area to work on. And let's call it for what it is. It's called what? Sin. Let's quit you know, skirting around the issue and trying to soften it. We are not at rest because we are allowing sin in our lives. Now, we will never be delivered completely until heaven. I'm not trying to say that, you know, your answer is to live a perfect life. But your answer is to get real with your sin, to not cover, to not run and hide, to not make excuses, to not blame, and to deal with it. Amen? Okay, now, I came up with these two thoughts. The unrest of the soul is universally and perpetually rooted in sin. There is not a person on the face of the earth whose soul is not at rest, and the problem is not what? Sin. Now, may not be their particular sin, but it's sin in general on the world that causes us to be at unrest. The cool thing is, it's universal, and it's always, it's perpetually, forever rooted in sin, except that the unrest of the soul is comprehensively and finally resolved in Jesus. If a person will turn to Jesus, Jesus will completely, comprehensively, and for all time, resolve the sin issue. Amen? Now, I may not see the complete resolution until I pass into the next world, but he begins that here and he finishes it there. Here's a verse that I want you to never look at the same again. We take this verse for granted. We quote it. It's like a Sunday school verse. Okay, here we go. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, what's it say? Rest for your souls. Now, Jesus said this. He said that until we come to him, we will have heavy burdens. We will be laboring underneath stuff. And he said, when we do come to him, now this is the part that I think we we as Christians are not doing. A yoke here in the Greek literally meant the wooden yoke that you would put over two oxen to force them to work in tandem as a team. Now, I want you to think about something. Just think about this with me because God really convicted me about this. Jesus didn't just say, call upon me as your Savior. Confess me as your Savior. And you'll find rest for your souls. Is that what he said here? Remember what Pastor said this morning? How many times did Jesus say, follow me? 23. Very good, Shaylin. Shaylin was listening, Pastor. 23 times he said, follow me. It's bigger than just, I confess Jesus as my Lord. Yes, you must. But here's what Jesus said. If you want to find rest for your soul, what did he say? Take my yoke upon you. Now, I always wondered, what? he really trying to say i mean i knew it meant that kind of yoke but here's what i realized shelly you want rest for your soul put the yoke over your neck with me and keep it there okay don't take it off when you're on the phone with your friends and you want to gossip about somebody keep it on Okay, when you get on to have a phone conversation, and women more, men do this too, but let me talk to the women because we all know we're there. When you get on the phone, I want you to picture a yoke over you and Jesus right beside you. And look at that yoke. It kept you together, right? Okay? 
So when you're on the phone, Jesus would say, put the yoke on, and I'm right there with you, okay? I'm right there. So where I go, you go. So when you're tempted to go off track and just veer, there's a tiny bit over here, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk about Deb just a little bit, because it'll make me feel better. Jesus says, no, 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 we're going this way. Leave the yoke on, shall we? And I may think that my gossip about Deb means very little. I mean, it's just a little sin. When I have psychological issues a week later, my soul's not at peace. I'm all restless. could trace it back to my habitual sin of gossip. I'm at odds with God. Amen? Okay? So... You've got to keep the yoke on. You know, men and women, when you're at work, when you're at home alone, you've got access to the computer, you've got access to the TV. No big deal what I really watch here. No big deal what my eyes see. I mean, I can tolerate a little bit of this. Put the yoke on. Because if you're you're yoked with Jesus and his head is right beside yours and you guys are going together, as soon as you start to veer, you're not going to veer that way. Jesus said, you want rest for your soul? Take my yoke upon you. Now, he also promised this, and I... My burden is light, he said. When you depend on the strength of Jesus, it is delightful to obey his commandments. Amen? It is delightful. How many of you can remember a specific experience when you put the yoke on and you knew that Jesus was right there and instead of taking off the yoke and saying, I'm going this way, you're still my Savior, but the yoke's off. I'm going this way, you go that way, Jesus. But instead of doing that, you put the yoke on. You said, I'm going where Jesus goes. You overcame the sin. How many of you have ever felt that sweet, sweet peace sweep over your soul? Okay? This is what Jesus meant. The unrest of the soul, psychological problems are always universally and perpetually rooted in sinfulness. Now, yes, I can suffer for other people's sin as well, but believe me, I don't need to complain about how my husband or my friends or my pastor or my youth group sins against me. Because I got enough of my own sin causing my unrest. Amen? Interestingly, when Jesus said this about the yoke, he said, you will find rest for your, in the Greek, it's psyche. You'll find rest for your psyche. Yeah, it's beautiful. Francis Schaeffer said, psychological guilt is actual and cruel, but Christians know that there is also real guilt, moral guilt. Before a holy God. It's not a matter of only psychological guilt. That is the distinction. This is what he said. He said, when a man is broken in these moral and psychological areas, he is confused because he has the feelings of real guilt within himself. And yet he's told by modern thinkers that these are only guilt feelings. But he can never resolve these feelings because he has true moral awareness and the feeling of true guilt. You can tell him a million times that there's no true guilt, but he still knows there's true guilt. And how many of you have heard that term? You need to work through your guilt feelings. They're not feelings. When you're guilty, you're guilty. 
And we're guilty. And this is what I want to share with you. I'm not going to get very, I'm not going to get specific because it's not good to do that in a public setting. But I want to tell you something. God has been dealing with me lately on some very specific and very, very subtle habits of sinful thinking. And they can be very subtle. You know, an example would be pride. It's insidious. It is insidious. And you literally have to take the yoke of Jesus on. And you not only now are examining your actions, you're examining your motives. And I mean, it, you can say, well, I don't understand why I'm an unrest because I, I live a pretty good life. If you are a growing Christian in the Lord and you can stand before me and say, I live a pretty good life, you are crazy. Okay? Because I know it ain't so. We take so lightly the yoke of Jesus Christ. Who would say amen with me? When it comes down to it and push comes to shove and we're living in the daily world and we got all these pressures and people aggravate us and all this stuff goes on, hey, we're not, we're not seriously yoking up with Jesus half the time. But take my yoke upon you and you will find what? Rest for your psyche. Okay? Treating a symptom while ignoring the deadly sickness is cruel. Root out the actual source of the problem. Remember when I gave the announcement in church for this? I told you guys, I'll just summarize it. I went to two different doctors three times for an extremely swollen tonsil, an emergency room doctor, and my PCP. And all three times I was told, we can't figure out why your tonsil is swollen. They gave me antibiotic, and they said, you must have acid reflux that comes up and irritates your tonsil so badly that it's getting infected. I'm like, really? I don't even have heartburn. Okay, but this is what they told me three times until I realized it was my wisdom tooth and went to the dentist and they yanked the tooth out. And I'll never forget I was awake when they yanked it out. It was lovely. You know, the the dentist said, you know, it's bad when the dentist, the oral surgeon says, hey, Cindy, come over here. Look at this. Okay, they took it out. and said, Have you ever seen a pocket of bacteria that big? Okay, so they took that out and there was this. And and once that tooth came out, my problem was gone. Now, here's the deal. Most of us in this sanctuary, because we haven't been schooled in the difference between secular and Christian psychology, are treating symptoms rather than the problem. You say, my problem is my family life, my home life, my spouse. My problem is I'm not, you know, my job's not good. My problem is this, my problem is that. She made me do it. He made me do it. The devil made me do it. These are all my problems. No, this is your problem. You're not yoking up with Jesus. You're continuing to allow areas in your life to be areas of sin. In your thoughts, in your actions. Amen? That's our problem. That is our problem. There is an answer. This is the last part, and let's go over the answer to this. There's a lovely book called Isaiah. How many of you love Isaiah? I almost like him as much as Petey. But in heaven, after Jesus, I'm seeing Petey next. Then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll try to have some coffee with Isaiah. Okay, so Isaiah 53. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, this, is a, this is a chapter that as a Christian, I urge you to meditate on. I urge you to memorize. If you, would put, if you have the time to put into memorizing, this is a wonderful chapter. It's a prophecy of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now, before we talk about Isaiah 53, you have your thumb there. How many of you have ever seen my huge bag that I cart on wheels to and from church to carry my computer and stuff? Pastor makes fun of me. Yes, Cindy. Yeah, he says I look like I'm going to the airport. 
But I used to have a bag in college that was about that big, but it was an over-the-shoulder bag. And it's what I carried my books in because I was a commuter. And I took calculus and psychology and some classes with some pretty heavy books. And I'll never forget the day I was in speech and communications class with my Catholic teacher, Father Andrew. Now, Father Andrew was an interesting kind of guy. He was a Catholic priest, and he started the class every day by saying, I believe in the Father, the Son, and Scotch on the Rocks. A very odd man. So, anyway, I had this speech and communication class, and one day he was teaching it, and we were sitting there, and about midway through the class, someone in the class, I, I, you, you could just feel restlessness. It reminds me of the day that I was, I was teaching uh, middle schoolers, like my sixth or seventh year of teaching, and I could just sense that there was a general restlessness, and I couldn't put my finger on why they weren't paying attention to me, and then I realized my zipper was down. That kind of thing, you know. So the, the father was teaching. I don't like to call him the father, but Father Andrew was teaching, and and, and everybody was kind of moving around. And then I heard somebody say, what's that smell? Okay. So then pretty soon I could smell it. And we just couldn't concentrate because there was a horrible, putrid smell in the room. And I thought, oh, i got to get out of here. And when class was over, I was so excited. We ran out in the hallway, went down to the beautiful stained glass window at the end of Seton Hill. You know, and I sat down there with my book bag to get my little snack out because here I was, my little curly-headed diabetic in college. Got to go to the end and eat my snack, you know. And I'm like... That's still with me. I was starting to get a little disturbed, and then I realized that my squarish type book bag had a sturdy flap underneath to hold the calculus book, you know. And and I thought, I, I think that's coming from my bag, you know. And I I started investigating, making sure no one is around. I lifted all my books out. I lifted that bottom flap up, you know, the flap that that made it strong at the bottom, and between the flap and the vinyl of that book bag was what was left of a three-week-old banana. I am telling you, this thing was in there before break, and I often carried bananas around in case I went low. I mean, I I could tell. I I couldn't have known it was a banana unless I knew that that's what I had put in there, and somehow it got tucked under my books and got under the flap again. It was crushed to smithereens, and it stunk. But I thank God for that experience. I've never forgotten it. Here's why. Isaiah 53. You ready for this? Watch this. God starts out, he says, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, shall grow before them as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Amen? So all those movies and things that make Jesus look like he was a pretty boy, he wasn't a pretty boy. He was an average boy. One to identify with every one of us. There was no beauty or comeliness that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do you see that? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of my peace is upon him, and by his stripes I am healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He 
was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And I love this. I was looking at that out in the parking lot. I was pacing and reading and I thought, that's really something. Three times in three verses about Jesus, we hear the word mouth, that he opened not his mouth. It's time for us to start shutting up and listening. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Now look at this. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isn't that some statement? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when he... He has put him to grief. And when... Where are we at here? He hath put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear our iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, I want you to go back with me to verses 4 and 5. Surely, Jesus bore my griefs and carried my sorrows. Yet as a world, as a whole, we looked at him and we considered him stricken by God. But actually, verse 5 He was wounded for our transgressions, and some versions, I'm I'm quoting it the King James, but some versions there say, he was crushed for our iniquities. Listen to me. Without true confession of your guilt before a holy God, you are the banana in the bottom of my book bag. You are a smelly, stinking, rotten, psychological disaster. Because when we are not truly confessing our guilt before a holy God, the burden of our sins comes down on us. And the burden of sin is a burden that no human being can psychologically bear. Amen? Jesus was crushed. He, he came under the weight of all my sin, and he became that, that banana, that crushed thing under God. God took Jesus, and the Bible says it pleased God to bruise him. Why? Because God loves Shelley Prindle so much, God looked down at me and said, she is a disaster. She is a selfish sinner. But I don't want her crushed by it. I will crush Jesus so that she doesn't have to be crushed. Amen? Now the thing is, Isaiah 53 is the relief of our guilt, but Jesus in 1 Peter 2.24 tells us the yoke part. There's true guilt and there's true forgiveness. Listen, I had a friend once, a dear friend. She came to me one day, and she told me how she had aborted her child. 
she couldn't function, you know. And I, I had never studied what you were supposed to do for a woman who'd faced an abortion, but it was just my gut instinct. I went with her and I said, let's go buy baby booties. Let's put a, let's put a name to the child because the child's real. And she said to me, she said, Shelly, I'm afraid to go to heaven because I'm going to see my baby there. What's she going to say to me? And I looked at her and I said, the Bible says when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him face to face. I said, your little girl already sees Jesus. She's going to be like Jesus. I said, how does Jesus look at you? She said, he loves me. I said, she loves you too. But what we were going through in the process there was confessing true guilt. Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. When the Bible says, and then it says, by his wounds we have been healed. When Isaiah said, by his wounds we have been healed, certainly and surely physical healing is included in the price that Jesus paid on the cross. How many of you believe that? That's an absolutely true statement. Every single one of us will be healed for definitely sure in heaven and sometimes here on earth. Amen? But when Peter quoted Isaiah and said he died on the cross so that you could die to sins and live for righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed, Peter was not talking about physical healing there. He was talking about spiritual healing. Many people come to the altar, and I did it last year. I asked to be anointed with oil. The elders anointed me with oil. God healed my eyes of some conditions that I had, and there was a physical healing that took place. Amen. But someday I'm still going to die, and my eyes will go into the grave. The most important healing that you can come to the altar and pray for is this. God, make my heart work right. Make my heart want to put the yoke on. That's what the promise is. By his stripes. And somebody said to me the other day, we take so much for granted, somebody said to me the other day, what are his stripes? The cuts. The the damage that was done to his body. By his bloody stripes, you are healed. Your bodily healing That's a secondary issue. The healing that you need is you need to know that not only is your guilt gone because of Jesus, but your ability to take the yoke and say no to sin is also through Jesus. Amen? That's a true, true statement. John 15:26 Jesus said when the helper comes whom I will send from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me it amazes me that the holy spirit is both the spirit of truth and the helper because most times we don't want someone to know everything about us do we and how many of you want me to be able to peer into your soul and know absolutely everything about you right now 
We're afraid that if somebody knew the whole truth, they would condemn us. Now, let me repeat this. I'm going to say something very profound. We're afraid that if somebody ever knew the whole truth about us, they would condemn us. Guess what? The Holy Spirit knows everything about you. And guess what he said? I came to help. See that? The word for help there in different versions of the Bible can be rendered counselor, comforter, or advocate. And I said to the youth group the other night, you would have to lay, how long would you have to lay on the couch of a psychiatrist to tell them absolutely everything about you from beginning to end? Every experience you've ever had, every absolute thing about your life, how long would you have to lay on that couch? They were like, forever. How could you ever have enough words to tell somebody to explain every complication, every issue, why you are the way you are, DNA, experiences, relationships. How could you? You could not. But here's the good news. You don't have to lay on the couch for hours. When we pray at the end of this, you can say, Holy Spirit, you know everything. And guess what? He does. He knows everything in an instant about you, but not for the purpose of condemning, for the purpose of what? Helping. Last thing. The difference between secular and Christian psychology has serious implications. For the non-Christian, suffering is a harsh reality that must be avoided at all costs. For the Christian, suffering may be used by God to discipline and lead us. Indeed, Christians are sometimes called to plunge joyously into suffering in obedience to God. William Kirkpatrick said, the real test of a theory or way of life, however, is not whether it can relieve pain, but what it says about the pain it cannot relieve. And this is where I believe psychology lets us down and Christianity supports us. For in psychology, suffering has no meaning, while in Christianity, it has great meaning. Um, Hebrews chapter 12. Don't turn there. Just let me read it because we're closing here. Just let me read what this says. It says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father's spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I just want to say one thing before I read these last verses to close. Um, you know, for instance, I, I am a diabetic, and I don't believe that was because of some particular sin in my life. It's because of, well, I live in a sinful world. So I have a genetic disease. It's diabetes. And I've suffered with it for 30 years, and I cry many tears over it, and it's very painful. But its pain does not compare to the pain I feel of guilt when I'm out of line with God. I find that I can bear suffering as long as I'm walking with God. Amen? And many in this church are going through different kinds of suffering. There's all kinds of suffering represented here. But I want to tell you something. God uses suffering 
for your good. The kind of suffering you don't want to be doing is suffering under the guilt of your own refusal to confess and take the yoke. Amen? Okay, now watch this. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is currently lame may not come out of joint but be healed. So God is saying it's possible that your your knees are weak, your hands are drooping, and if you don't lift them up and get them to God, they're going to go out of joint. But if you do, you will be healed. Amen? I bought this poster some time ago and forgot that I had it. It just struck me. It was way before I ever thought of doing this message, before this message was even an idea in my mind. It's in the shape of a cross. For those of you who can't read from back where you are, I know that you can all read. Maybe not. Guilt, stress, regret, pain, depression, shame, temptation, disappointment, discontentment, worry, pride, loss, insecurity, decisions, resentment, doubt, thoughts, motives, addiction, gossip, hate, animosity, submission, rebellion, fear, anger, lust, greed, health, failure, relationships. By his stripes, we are healed. Okay, I can't wait for the day God heals me of this hideous, stupid disease that I have. But I can handle it. What I can't handle is my sin unconfessed and my refusal to take the yoke and walk every day with unrest in my soul because I willingly and knowingly cave in to sins left and right, big and small. Amen? By his stripes you have been healed. Healed and given the ability to be able to do what is right. 